Well, hey there, friends. Pastor Rob Brockman here. I'm joined by Pastor Paul Carter, lead pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the Into the Word podcast. In this Q&A episode, we want to dig into the topic of human sexuality, which we've been talking about over the past few weeks at our Sunday services as we go through the book of Leviticus. But it's going to come up a fair bit if you're a Bible reader and you just read through your Bible. So, Pastor Paul, uh, you read and preached through the whole of Leviticus 18 this past Sunday. And in the second service, actually, you asked everyone, how many of you have ever sat through the reading and preaching of Leviticus 18 in its entirety? And and in fact, about 80%, I think, at least, probably raised their hands and said, I've never sat through this. (laughs) That's crazy. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, maybe a lot of it has to do with some other things not related to human sexuality. Some of it is the evangelical awkwardness with the Old Testament in general, and I would say with Leviticus in particular. It's it's the book of the Bible. We are least clear as to what we should be doing with that. Is is there any enduring relevance? And, and just there's a lot of evangelical awkwardness around Leviticus, period. But then there's also a lot of awkwardness around human sexuality. Mm. And I think it's a holdover from the Victorian era where we, we picked up this idea that, you know, decent people didn't talk about such things, mm. which, to be perfectly honest with you, is, is ridiculous. Uh, the Bible gives us plenty of evidence that human sexuality was not considered a taboo topic for God's people. Um, there's, there's a lot of, of content related to human sexuality in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, in, in Bible times, communities understood that if you didn't talk about what you believed about human sexuality. If you didn't talk about these things, then you had no hope of mm. passing on your values and your beliefs to the next generation. And so they did that. They did that in the Old Testament. They did it in the New Testament. And, and I would argue we need to be doing that again in our day because for the last 50 or 60 years, we have basically allowed the culture to provide sex education for our children while we you know, sit over here pretending that we're too delicate to have this conversation in church. That's not been helpful. Mm. And I think we need to turn that around rather rapidly. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in your, in your message that Leviticus 18 is about boundaries, mm-hmm. where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of getting to the center of God's design for human sexuality. Walk us through that distinction. Yeah, and I think this principle basically holds with a number of conversations, not not just the conversation about human sexuality, but it certainly works here. In Leviticus 18 to to 20, uh, I think you could make a decent argument that what we have there are the outer boundaries for human sexuality. So in Leviticus 18, that middle portion that takes up the bulk of the verses is all about um, people you must not have a sexual union with. It's all addressed to a young man. It's saying, so you, you mustn't look for a wife or you mustn't have a sexual encounter with right. your father's wife, your stepmother. You mustn't with your sister. You mustn't with your aunt. You mustn't with... And so it's, it's a whole list of you mustn't with. And, and so that sort of establishes the, the boundaries, as it were. Uh, and it's even more than, you know, which, which persons or which, which females, in this case, you could pursue a, a marriage or a sexual union with. It even says, you know, you mustn't lie with a male as, as with a woman. Uh, you mustn't lie with an animal. So it's, it's sort of saying all these, these are the boundaries. Don't, don't do that. Um, health, life, blessing is found in, inside these boundaries. All right, well, that's great. Uh, the, the Old Testament law generally does provide us with boundaries. Um, however, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's interested in more than boundaries. He wants to teach us how to live at the center. Mm. 
So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't deny the boundaries. He'll say, you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which is great. He doesn't go on to say, but I tell you, go ahead if you like. No, no, he says, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So he's saying, listen, boundaries are great, but I'm here to teach you how to live at the center. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction. That Jesus is, is about, you know, by, with the gift of the new heart, uh, through his authoritative teaching, and, and most importantly, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm. He's about helping us live at the very center of God's will. Mm. That's a whole different ballgame. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, okay, that's good. That's very helpful. Well, let's talk about some follow-up questions then that kind of come from this and, and questions around human sexuality. A couple of weeks ago, you preached a sermon on boundaries and how boundaries exist to mark out the place of health, happiness, and blessing and to protect us from things that actually lead to chaos, conflict, and yeah. death. And in your application, you uh, brought up a specific issue, the issue of transgender young people, and specifically the matter of teenage girls identifying yeah. as transgender. Why, why do you think that is such a concerning manifestation of this age-old tendency to like break down right. boundaries and test boundaries that God has established? Well, I would say, you know, boundary crossing is as old as sin itself. In fact, one of the main words we use for sin is, is to trespass or to transgress. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our trespasses. There's a sense in which all sin is essentially boundary crossing. And therefore, as long as there have, has been sin, there, there has been boundary crossing. But there is a, a unique phenomenon happening right now in Western culture with respect to uh, the transgender boundary. Uh, and and it's, it's baffling a lot of people. You don't have to be a Christ follower or a Bible reader to be concerned about this phenomenon. The, in the UK, they're reporting a 4,400% increase mm. in the number of young girls, teenage girls, adolescent girls, seeking cross-gender or cross-sex treatment. And, and that cannot be explained uh, by, by anything other than some kind of social contagion. Yeah. As, as if there is some pressure right now in the culture that is encouraging young girls to use this particular boundary marker as a way of establishing their identity and as a way of joining a support culture. Uh, we've got girls who obviously aren't, aren't uh, confident in their own identity, aren't feeling safe in their own sexuality, who are questioning what it means to be a woman. And, and then you've got the, the, the promise of tremendous support and community uh, here and, and the opportunity to establish your identity. Right now, a lot, of, a lot of young people in general look at boundaries, and sexual boundaries in particular, as an opportunity to establish their identity. Right. I want to be part of this group, or I want to be part of this alliance, or this club. And there's a ton of pressure right now, and there's a ton of momentum in the culture towards identifying the transgender boundary as just the ideal opportunity to own your own identity and, and to connect with a supportive culture. Mm -hmm. The problem is uh, that this particular boundary uh, is highly electrified. It, crossing it comes at a terrible cost. Mm. Uh, the cross-sex hormones lead to infertility. Uh, and, and in fact, top surgery, uh, which is what, what the, the young people call it, we would refer to it as a double mastectomy, uh, leads to the inability to nurse children. So it has tremendous consequences. And, and when, when children are making these kinds of decisions, I think we all need to be concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our brains don't, don't stop developing until we're 24, 25. And so we've got, we've got 13 year old girls 
you know, who are struggling with their identity, who are subject to a lot of peer pressure through TikTok and these other, these other tools, uh, making decisions that will impact them for right. their whole lives. And right. that's, I think, a little different. Like, you know, 20, 30 years ago when, when young people were experimenting with boundaries, there was always the sense that, yeah, you can come back from that. I mean, it, it, not to make light of it, but, but you know, uh, let's put it this way. All sin, all transgression uh, is, is equally serious in the, in the sense that it represents rebellion against God. But some transgressions uh, have more consequences, more biological, more irreversible it's consequences. It's hard to walk back from those. 100%. <laughs> And so, I, yeah, I think there are a lot of people concerned about that. Mm. What about a young person, though, who's saying, look, Pastor Paul, like, I'm not trying to be a rebel. Right. Like, I'm just, this is genuinely how I feel. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. What do you say to someone like that? Well, the first thing I think I would say is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Um, one of the things the Bible tells us is that on the other side of the fall, our desires are disordered. Uh, our, our inclinations are unreliable. Mm. Um, our compass is broken, as it were. So it doesn't point true north anymore. So if you just follow your desires and follow yourself like the world's telling you, inevitably you'll end up in one ditch or another. Mm. And, and that, I think, is the great lie of the devil, that, mm. that you can trust yourself that your desires will lead you to truth and happiness. Well, no, they won't. And, and, and it's not just in, in the case of a, 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 you know, a 13-year-old transgender girl. I'd say the same thing to a 35-year-old married man. Right. right. If you just follow all your instincts and all your desires, you're going to end up in trouble. Uh, they're going to lead you in, into the swamp. They're going to lead you into a pit you can't get out of. Uh, wisdom, maturity, and, and I would say, and faith is ultimately about trusting what God says mm. more than what you feel. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that's the, the, what I would try to help them understand is that, yeah, these, I'm not saying those, those desires aren't real. I'm, I'm saying they're not authoritative. Mm. And, and they're not necessarily constant. They're not nearly as constant as people in the culture will try to tell you. They'll try to tell you who you feel like as a 14-year-old is who you are. Well, mm. then why are all, in, in Great Britain, why are all these mature adult women in their 20s suing their doctors for allowing them to have transgender surgery when they were 15 years old? Because their feelings change. Uh, as, as indeed, I think we can all remember, if you're my age, you can remember, I felt all kinds of things as a 15-year-old. I'm so thankful I wasn't locked into, right. you know, by biology or by, you know, by some other choice that I made. Yeah. You said something this past Sunday I want to dive into a bit. You said that our grandparents, you know, 50, 70 years ago, a lot of them, a high percentage of them were living inside biblical norms and boundaries for human sexuality almost by accident. You said that. Um, What do you mean by that? Is that true? Kind of unpack what you mean by that. Well, I don't don't want to embarrass my mom, but actually that sort of awareness came to me as a result of a conversation I had with my mom a number of years ago. I don't even know if she'd remember it, but my parents came to faith late in life. So they were not Christ followers in high school. Mm. Um, And and yet their their life, and again, not without giving a lot of detail or anything, but their life actually kind of follows, or or, or, uh, their trajectory kind of operates within these traditional boundaries. I mean, they started dating when they were 16 years right. old. You know, they were high school sweethearts, married each other. And, you know, it had a very Norman Rockwell feel to <laughs> it, uh, despite the fact that they were not Christ followers. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, that you know, people of that generation 
lived out God's design for human sexuality perfectly. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there, there was a lot of cultural pressure. And that's what I asked my mom. I said, you know, again, she was not a Christ follower in high school. And I asked her, I said, you know, when you were in high school, what was, was there a lot of pressure to transgress these sexual boundaries as there is today? Or, or did most people, by and large, you know, uh, kind of do things the Christian way? And she said, oh, yes, you know, in, when I was in high school, you didn't want to be known as the girl who, who slept around. Okay. And the expectation was that, that you'd, you know, you'd find the right fella and you'd, you'd, and, and you'd be together. And, and so there was that kind of loosely Christian set of norms that still govern the behavior of most non-Christian teenagers in our high school. Mm. And, and so that's the, the, the only point I'm trying to make there, is, is that for our parents and our grandparents, this was probably not the test of faith that it is for, for our children and for our grandchildren in the coming generations. Mm. There was a lot of cultural pressure towards these sort of latent Christian boundaries. Now again, I'm not saying they lived at the heart, I'm saying they respected the boundaries. Mm. A, a, a fairly low percentage of our grandparents were, were probably in, engaged in adultery. A fairly low percentage of our grandparents were engaged in homosexual activity. A fairly low percentage of, of our grandparents were having sex with animals. I mean, that's the, these are the boundaries, right? That's the, the outer limit. They all, the culture kind of moved them into that zone. Mm -hmm. And what's different today is that the culture is actually encouraging us outside of the zone. Mm -hmm. So for today, living inside these sexual boundaries is manifestly a, a test of faith and, and offers the potential for it to be a demonstration of faith mm. in a way that I'm just saying it probably didn't 50 or 70 years ago. Mm. So what about a young person today who actually wants to be faithful to God's design? Mm -hmm. You're talking about there is a cultural pressure today yeah. that is, 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 is growing and there's pure momentum swaying them a different direction. How is it possible? How would it be possible for a young person to do that today? How can they expect be expected to swim completely against culture in this? Yeah, well, I would say only by the grace of God. Right. And I don't say that as a pat line. I mean that quite literally. Like, so the gift of the new covenant or, or the, the graces of the new covenant are primarily this, this new heart. I'll give you a transformed heart and, and the gift of the spirit. Jesus said, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Mm. So there's a, there's a sense in which when we're born again, because remember the heart is, depending on whether you have the ESV or the NKJV, the ESV has it, the heart is desperately wicked. Mm. The King James, or New King James has it, the heart is desperately sick. So what we need is a new heart. And that's what Jesus offers us. Uh, he, he offers to, to basically heal that which is impossibly broken and mm. sick. And then he offers to put the Holy Spirit in, in, in our heart which inclines us towards the center. I mentioned a little while ago about how our compass is broken. If you follow your broken compass, you're gonna end up in the ditch, one ditch or another. But then with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're actually taught to love the center. Mm. That's the, the movement as you go from Old Testament to New. In the Old Testament, the, the, the fence is electrified. But in the New Testament, by the Spirit, you're taught to love living at the center. So it's not like the goalposts move, it's the motivation moves. And so we have the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so the work of the Spirit is to make us like Jesus. Jesus lived comfortably within the sexual boundaries, even as a single man, of course, right? Jesus didn't even, didn't marry. So, you know, you know he, he was living comfortably within God's design by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he offers us that same thing. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror, are being transformed 
by one degree of glory to the next into the same image. The same image as Christ. Mm. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So again, with that new heart, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are, little by little, I love that phrase, by one degree of glory to the next, because it, you know, it, it recognizes our human weakness. This isn't going to happen all in a weekend, but little by little, we will be taught to love and, and to live at the center of God's design, just like mm. Jesus did. Yeah. Well, along that line, functionally speaking, what can the church do better mm -hmm. to help young people who want to live within these boundaries? What can we do to assist them? Well, the first thing we can do is what we've we're doing right now is we can talk about it. Uh, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate that we have basically handed the sex education of our next generation right. over to the school system and over to TikTok and all these other mechanisms. That's just wildly unhelpful. Um, the, the church sh should be talking about this stuff um, and, and we should be normalizing conversations about human sexuality. Yeah. Not in a crass or crude way. I know actually I'm, I'm aware that there is some um, pushback against an overreaction to this. As I mentioned, uh, the church didn't talk about this stuff. So, you know, it, it, uh, probably in the, say, 60s and 70s, and so my, my parents came to faith in the, in the 70s, in the mid-70s, they probably didn't hear a lot of sermons on human mm -hmm. sexuality. Um, it just wasn't considered appropriate. And then about, you know, about a decade ago, or maybe about 15 years ago, there was this, under, there was this awareness or awakening to the fact that, hey, we haven't done a great job talking about this. And then all of a sudden, for some, you know, because evangelicals are great at going from one side of the horse to the other yeah. and from one ditch to the other. Then all of a sudden, we, there started being a lot of crass mm -hmm. and crude sermons about sexuality yeah. where we were getting into some inappropriate stuff and talking in, in a way that I think would curl your hair. And, and so I'm not, I'm not calling for that. Um, I'm, and I'm certainly not calling for the imposition of some kind of, you know, John Wayne, hyper-masculine... Mm. Uh, you know, approach to sexuality either. That's uh, very unhelpful. What I'm saying is there are tremendous resources in the scripture that would allow us to have a really useful, really practical, really helpful, really honest conversation with our children and grandchildren. And we need to do that soon. We need to do that quick because we're already behind the, behind the eight ball. So that's one thing. Normalize the conversation. Have it on a biblical basis. But then the other thing that we can offer, the church can offer, that I, I don't think any other community or context can offer in culture is multi-generational friendship. Mm. So everybody feels awkward talking to their parents about sex, don't they? I know my kids do. I'm always uh, having the conversation with them and they're always like, Dad, stop, <laughs> knock it off. Uh, so, but, but the opportunity to, to have that conversation with older brothers and sisters, older aunties and uncles, older cousins, even, even grandparents, to, you know, to sit down with grandparents and, and say, you know, how, how did this work out for mm. you? And, uh, I think that is incredibly mm. helpful and incredibly useful. So the multi-generational friendship, the multi-generational community, and frank, honest, biblically-based conversations I think mm. would be super helpful. And then, of course, this does not go without saying, we need to be praying for the next generation. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've had this conversation with my son. I, you know, I, I said, I'm, I'm well aware that it's harder for you than it was for me. You know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to look at pornography, you had to go into a, a variety store and uh, the, the magazines were at the back row in, in, in little covered boxes. You could just see the title. You had to tell somebody at the counter that you were a pervert and wanted yeah. to see naked people. And that was horrifying. Mm. And that horror was actually helpful. It was dissuasive. Yes, it was. 
And uh, but but of course today with the kids it comes to them through their phones and yeah, it comes so to them easily. through everything. It, you don't have to go looking for it. It comes looking for you. That's a significant difference. So we need to be praying for our kids. Um, we need to be praying for our children, and our grandchildren. And uh, I, as I said, I don't think that goes without saying. I think that's wildly important. Everybody needs to hear that. If you only hear one thing, hear mm -hmm. that and do it. Well, maybe speak to somebody who has transgressed some of these boundaries and. Mm -hmm. Is, is there a way back from that kind of transgression? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, there's a way back. It's the way of the cross, right? Uh, there is no sin that is stronger than the Savior. There's, there's, there's no sin that's stronger than the blood of Christ. And, you know, I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He lists all these sins, not just sexual sins, right? Uh, but, he, but he does list sexual sins. And he says, and such were some of you, mm. but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, right? So there's no... There's no sin that's that's greater than the cross, and so uh, you know whatever boundary you've been lured onto, that's the devil's game, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to lure our kids. He wants to lure all of us onto the power of the law, and he wants to make us transgressors. He wants to alienate us from God. He wants to diminish us. But the blood of Christ restores us. Mm. Through the blood of Christ, we can be forgiven. Through the Spirit of Christ, we can be restored and remade. Mm. So, you know, absolutely, there's hope. There's hope in the gospel uh, for sexual sinners, as, as there always has been and as there always will be. Yeah. Some of these boundaries are actually being policed now by the culture in, mm. in a negative sense, yeah. meaning if you try to stop people and warn people from crossing these boundaries, have these conversations, you can actually get into trouble maybe. And yeah. I'm thinking of Bill C6, for example. Sure. Yeah. that would seek to criminalize what some would call conversion therapy. Yeah. So what happens when advocating for God's design for human sexuality becomes criminable, criminable by like jail, like you get thrown in jail for teaching sure. this? Yeah, now some of those things are in process in, in our culture. We're speaking from the Canadian culture and you referenced Bill C-6. Bill C-6 has been deferred, it was deferred by the Senate. Yeah. So um, it will likely come back after the election and uh, so it's a reminder to you that elections matter. Elections have consequences. Um, you should know who you're voting for. And if you're a voter, you should have conversations with candidates in your riding about this issue. Um, but after the election, uh, I, I would imagine, not to be overly suspicious, but I would imagine the government is hoping for a stronger mandate. Uh, and should they um, have that stronger mandate, they'll feel more confidence to pursue Bill C-6. There was a lot of pushback. Mm. Uh, they received a ton of letters uh, from not just Christians, but a number of people in the community who are concerned about it. The language in C-6 was incredibly vague mm. and unhelpful, All, almost to the point where it sounded like it would criminalize conversations between a parent and a child. Right. Like, that, if, that if a parent just wanted to sit down with a 13-year-old girl and say, hey, listen, let's just look at the options, look at the costs, um, you know, cross sexual hormones. You're, you're making a decision right now that will render you infertile. Is this a decision a 13-year-old girl should make? It almost sounds mm. in the original wording like that might be criminalized. Now, people, people who were advocating for the law said, oh, no, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah. no. The goal of the law is just to criminalize uh, harmful therapies, shock therapies, and all these, all the, and, and, Listen, as a Christian, I want that too. I'm, I'm not in favor of any sort of coercive yeah. or abusive approach to anything. I don't want to convert anybody by the sword. I want to convince people that God's ways are right and lead to life. Mm. So I'm, I'm for that. But it, it looked 
kind of like a Trojan horse, like they were trying to get it through, and then poof, all this other stuff would come flying out, and we'd all be in trouble. Now, I don't know. As I said, that's in process. We'll have to see. I mean, let's be praying about that, and let's take positive steps. Let's be talking to our uh, elected officials. But I will say, it, it would appear to me that unless there's a great revival uh, in, this, in this great land, at some point in the near future, um, people will face consequences for speaking frankly and honestly mm. um, about human sexuality as described and delineated, uh, delineated in the scriptures. And I would think that the people most at risk are pastors. I, I doubt, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a glass half full guy, but I, I doubt that uh, whatever final form Bill C-6 takes, it will criminalize parents having conversations with their children. I just, I think there'd be an uproar from all segments of society around right. that. But I do think they can, get, they feel that they can get away with putting pastors in the hot seat. Well, you know, evangelical pastors are the only ones who'd be, well, I, mean, I suppose Catholic priests would be the only ones daring to have this conversation with young people. And they're a small enough group that the government probably feels like there wouldn't be a lot of substantial pushback should they criminalize that. So I suspect that in my lifetime or in, in my pastoral tenure, um, we'll face criminal fines, possibly imprisonment, for doing what I did last Sunday, mm. um, speaking honestly and frankly and lovingly about what the Bible says with respect to human sexuality. Mm. Well, we've talked a lot about the challenges. Um, let's turn the page and let's talk about some of the blessings. What are yeah. some of the, the blessings of doing sex God's way. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of the conversation that we need to have with our children and our grandchildren. I've, I've had this conversation with my own children. Again, they, they don't, they're not wildly enthusiastic about these efforts, but uh, I do think they're important. Yeah. And, and I've tried to communicate to my children that this isn't just like one of those things where God says, just, just do it, just do it because I said so. I mean, he does say so, uh, but there is reason behind it, and there's love behind it. God isn't, you know, being arbitrary here. Mm. God's way for sex works. Um, it's, you know, I've made the analogy before uh, when speaking to, to, to kids and parents, but, you know, imagine you, you got a, a blender in the mail from Amazon, and, and um, you opened it up and thought, oh, what a, what a great way to do my nails. Okay, well, you, you know, that's that level of ignorance with respect to the intention of this product right. is going, going to lead to yes. harm. <laughs> um, so it's, it is important to read the manual. It is important to, to have some communication from the designer of the mm. product. Sex was designed by God. He gives us some instructions so that we can get the most out of it, so we can mm. enjoy it. And, and when we follow those rules and these guidelines and when we live within these parameters and, and through the Holy Spirit, when we, when we drive towards the center, there is tremendous blessing mm. here. And, and I, so I've tried to communicate that to my kids. Like, listen, understand that, that if you do it the world's way, if, if you have, you know, say, sex with many partners and just live, live out crazy in, in your young adult years and then you get married, understand that's going to be an impediment mm. to sexual intimacy with your spouse. Yeah. Your spouse is always going to feel like, am I being compared to these others? You're going to feel, am I being... And, and vulnerability is a big part of intimacy. Mm. And of course, then there are the health challenges, the yep. risks, uh, risks to you, risks to your body, risks to your soul. Um, there are no boundaries that can be crossed without cost. Mm. And you know, a casual sex 
comes with significant health risks and it comes with the risk of pregnancy, yeah. obviously. And so you say, well, well that's, you know, that's what abortion is for. Okay, well, tell that to your conscience. Um, there's a lot of psychological damage, not, not to mention the damage to that child. Yeah. So it is safer in the long run. It is better. It is more joyful. It is, it is happier. It is more fruitful to live within God's design. And, you know, we've, we see that reflected in the data. A number of surveys have been done indicating that the people who say they have the most fulfillment in their sex life are, are usually men and women who've been married to the same person for 20 years. Yeah. Um, it, it, sex is intimacy. I love the fact that in, in Hebrew, the word for sexual intimacy is yada, which means to know deeply. It could be sexual. It can just, can just mean to know a person deeply. God says uh, in Genesis 22 to Abraham, Atayadati, um, for now I know. Now, that's nothing sexual there. God, through exploring Abraham mm. in, in the challenge uh, with respect to sacrificing Isaac and, that, and just seeing how Abraham responded. Of course, God said, stop, Abraham, don't do that. It was just, just a way of exploring Abraham's character. God knew him deeply. Mm. So there's a sense in, in which sexuality is about exploration and knowledge. So again, that fits better within God's design, which is about mutuality, exclusivity mm. over time. Mm -hmm. So what is then God's design for biblical sexuality? Talk to us about that. Well, yeah, I would say those words, mutuality, exclusivity, uh, those would be the two words. And I would add over time, right? That, that, that God's design is for this to be an enduring, a permanent union till death do us part. And that's the sum of it. And, and there was nothing like that uh, before Christianity, uh, before biblical sexual morality. That it's not as though, you know, we've lived under, you know, the fading glory of, of Christian sexual morality in this culture. Uh, all the boundaries that we delight in crossing, those are boundaries that came to us through Christianity. Uh, so it's not as though this, this is sort of the default sexual ethic of, of cultures prior to Christ. Absolutely not. Uh, talk to an anthropologist about human sexuality in cultures that don't know Christ. It's mm -hmm. not this. And, uh, and of course, we, we have enough Greek and Roman history to, to know it's not this. Uh, Roman men were actually encouraged to only have sex with their wives when they wanted to produce an heir. Mm. Other than that, you know, Roman men boasted that they, they had sex with prostitutes for pleasure. They had sex with their slaves to sort of manage daily needs. Um, and and not, not to be crude, but... Um, Many prostitutes in, in Rome were actually young boys dressed as women. So mm. that was not considered homosexuality, by the way, by the Romans. Um, but a, again, just a, a, a long way from what we think of as traditional Christian sexual morality. And, and so that's, that's kind of what's, what's out there. Uh, and that's the, that's the dark. And I would argue this, this way that is outlined for us in the Bible is, is the light, mm. and, uh, and there's blessing, there's joy, there's health inside. Yeah. So mutuality, by mutuality, I, I mean that it, it's not just for the man. It's not something the man takes from mm. the woman. In fact, you see that in 1 Corinthians 7, yeah. where, where Paul says to the man, you know, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your wife. Nobody had ever said that before, that the woman has sexual rights to her husband's mm. body. Nobody had ever said that. Um, so that's what I mean by mutuality. That it's again, and this is where some of that hyper masculinity talk that yeah. is, is so disgusting, to be honest with you, and so unhelpful in, in certain parts of you know the evangelical world, where we, we need to we need to debate that and we need to condemn that just yeah. as strongly as we condemn this other stuff. 
sex in the Bible is mutual. Yeah. It's, it's for the comfort and increase of the man and the woman. So the comfort. So it's supposed to be comforting to your wife. It's not an attack. It's not yeah. an assault. It's not you using her uh, for your pleasure. It's for the comfort. And we owe that comfort. We owe that to each other. And so that's mutuality. Exclusivity means, and nobody else. Right? Paul had to, had to stress that to the Corinthians. He's like, no, okay, no. Lean in, men. We're not going to have sex with prostitutes, he says in 1 Corinthians 6. And that's new information to them. They're like, oh, they're taking notes. Right? So uh, exclusive, like just you and your wife, no, nobody else. No slaves, no prostitutes, mm-hmm. no neighbors, no, nothing. Just, just the two of you. There's the exclusive piece. And then forever, the enduring piece is till death do us part. You know, we're not to you know, have one wife for, for a season of our lives, and then when she gets a little older, we get rid of her and get another. No, no, no. We're going to grow old together. Mm. We're going to take care of each other. Uh, we're in this for all seasons in, of, of life. So that's the Christian design in a nutshell. And it's, and it's supposed to um, communicate something beautiful, something even Christological to the culture. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what does... Um, how might that work? What might that witness look like mm-hmm. if we are living out, we start to live out God's design for human sexuality? What does that say to our culture? Well, it, it's going to say something. And, and I think it's going to be one of the most important things we say in the next generation. And, and interestingly, lots of, of historians who aren't Christ followers pick up on this. I think of Rodney Stark. Uh, Rodney Stark made this point in, the, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. Uh, Tom Holland, to a lesser extent, has been making this point um, in his book uh, Dominion and in, in other of his publications. So a number of, of folks have recently been making the point that the Christian sexual ethic was actually one of the ways that Christianity converted the Roman Empire. It was particularly attractive to Roman women, mm. as we can well imagine, right? A Roman woman married to a Roman man expected to be used basically yeah. as, a, as a breeding partner only. She did not expect that her husband would make any effort to comfort or, or, or to please her through sexuality. She was, she was a breeder. And not only that, but her husband had the right of life and death over uh, the issue of her womb. So. You know, we have letters from antiquity that have been preserved where a Roman man who's away on business writes back to his wife who is expecting a child. And he says, uh, so if you've had the baby, if it's a girl, expose it. If it's a boy, keep it. I'll be back in a week. And that, w- that was the legal authority a man had over the issue of, of his wife's womb. If they already had a daughter and he wanted a son this time around, well, we'll get rid of the girl. And, and so tons of babies were exposed uh, on the trash heaps by order of, of Roman husbands. And you can imagine the psychological trauma that had on, on women in that time. So Roman women in particular found the Christian sexual ethic to be incredibly attractive. Mm-hmm. And of course, Roman slaves too, because slavery is an institution. Typically, if you were a woman slave, you were essentially a, a private prostitute. And Christianity said, no, mm-hmm. no, we're not gonna treat people that way. We're not gonna do that. Uh, it forbade Christian masters to have sex with their slaves. So if you're a slave or you're a woman, Christianity was pretty attractive to you. Mm. So much so that actually people used to ridicule, ridicule Christianity and call it a religion of slaves and women. But so it was incredibly attractive. And to be honest with you, I think it will be again mm. as we begin to experience the fallout from a return to basically pagan sexuality. That's where we're going as a culture. And we've been there. We've done that. And it was horrible. Mm. And I think we're going to see that again. And I think we're going to 
have a lot of people exploring Christianity, not despite what it says about sexuality, but because of what it says about sexuality. So I expect conversations about sexuality to be far more expensive in the next 40 years, mm. but also far more profitable uh, in, in terms of our, our witness in the culture. So in terms of what's the content there, the content of, like what's the content of our witness through sexuality? I think the content is again, it's, it's saying that God is a good creator. Despite what you may have heard, this is not God holding back from you. This right. is God giving you. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is God protecting you. This is God ensuring your maximum pleasure and fruitfulness and happiness. So it says that God is a good God. I think when marriage is done the right way, it says something about Jesus. You know, Paul says that in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So the world should see, you know, that Christian husbands are a different breed. They love their wives, they pay themselves last, they take care of their wives, they protect their wives, they wash their wives in the water of the word, they take that seriously. Uh, And then when they look at Christian wives responding to husbands, they should see something of the trust and the delight and the rest that believers have in Christ. They should see some of that rest. Wouldn't I mean, when you talk to a woman who trusts her husband and is really flourishing under his loving care, I think that's going to be interesting in, mm. in, in the years to come. So anyway, I think that's some of the content, some of the attractiveness of the Christian wis, wis, uh, witness with respect to sexuality. Yeah. yeah. And that's a compelling vision, but a difficult one to communicate to a culture in our yeah. day. And we're going sure. to need the Lord's help and His grace, you know, if we want, if the Lord should tarry, to be a faithful witness over the next few decades. Yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, this is, it's a great challenge. It's a great opportunity for us to demonstrate trust and faith. You know, every boundary tells the truth about who you are. Mm. So every boundary is an opportunity to communicate something about yourself to God. It's an opportunity to say, I love you, I trust you, I delight in your ways, right, or not. But it's an opportunity to say something to God, and it's an opportunity to say something to our neighbors. But to say the right thing, to speak the right message, to give the right witness, particularly in these contested areas, we're going to need grace and help and and supply from the Lord. So again, mm. make human sexuality, make the witness of the church with respect to human sexuality, make the obedience of your children and grandchildren with respect mm. to human sexuality a matter for fervent prayer. Mm. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Paul, for your time. And thank you listeners for joining us. And as always, if you have questions, please send them to us, send them to us and we'll endeavor to get back to you as soon as possible on those. Until then, thank you for joining us on this Q&A on the topic of human sexuality, and we'll see you again soon. God bless. God bless.